The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. A warning to listeners, this conversation will deal with sexual assault, self-harm, and suicide. We kind of thought we'd have more time to catch our daughter slipping or falling or being depressed. It just happened so quickly and, and fast and right under our noses. And we thought we were doing all the right things. And uh, it was like she was snatched out right from underneath us, but she was there the whole time. That's a dad in British Columbia. We've altered his voice, and we're not naming him to protect his daughter's identity. She tried to kill herself last year, and while she was in hospital, he demanded to see her phone. That is when he learned about 764, an online cult that exploits young people and encourages self-harm. Insidious, I think, was the word that rang in my brain of how it... This cult was in our house the whole time, and we didn't see it. Joanna Rumiliotis is with the CBC's Fifth Estate. She has been investigating these emerging cults and how kids and teens are being targeted online. Joanna, good morning. Good morning. What do we know about this dad? This is really scary. Um, it, and, and what happened to his daughter? It's very scary. His daughter is about 15, is 15 years old, and um, she had a history of mental health challenges and a history of self-harm. But her dad noticed that the self-harm had escalated dramatically in the months leading up to her suicide attempt. And he was worried and when she did attempt to take her life and he finally got a hold of her phone, he, he got a glimpse into what was happening. And it was messages, disturbing messages, disturbing images of self-harm that she was um, sharing with somebody online on an app called Discord, which is familiar to kids. Um, it's a gaming app that started off in 2015, but it's no longer niche. It's very broad appeal, 150 million active users a month. Mm. And it's where... Um, his daughter was communicating uh, with this person. We're going to hear more about these groups um, in just a moment, but you spoke with a young woman who has a similar story, a, a teenage girl. Tell me a little bit about her. Her name is Allie Broadway. She's 15 years old. She lives in Virginia. She is a victim and survivor of extreme sexual and uh, emotional abuse at the hands of an older man who she met online. This is a person who not only exploited and groomed her for months, on the similar app on Discord, but also eventually crossed over into the real world where he um, physically assaulted her as well, and and that led to her abduction. Why did Ali start chatting with this person on this app, Discord? You know, it's typical, Matt, that we see with the kids who are being lured by these groups, there's a profile. They have challenges, mental health challenges. Ali um, also had her own challenges. She had attempted suicide before. She was only 11 years old when she went online looking for what's called a suicide challenge. And that is, you know, people goad you to do acts of self-harm. And it's where she came across this man named Caleb Merritt, who was 21 years old. And he 
encouraged her to carve his name on her thigh and eventually asked her to meet him and continue chatting with him in a private chat room on Discord. That's where the exploitation increased, the self-harm increased. She continued to cut herself over a period of several months. He also pressured her to create sexually explicit material of herself and to share that with him. She became attached to this person. She felt that she was in a relationship with him. And here's what Ali told us. I kind of fell in love because he talked to me and he he gave me the attention that I kind of needed. I was in a time period in my life where I didn't feel like I was worth much and nothing really that I found to help really helped. At some point just became addicting. Every time I did something wrong, cut. Every time I mess up, every time I make a mistake, slice. I wish I wouldn't have and I wish I would have saw the red flags right away, but I didn't. I just wanted someone to love me. What did this person want from her? It's control. In in a nutshell, it's all about control and seeing how far you can push a child to harm themselves and to create this kind of sexually explicit material that is then shared among other members of these groups. So according to the FBI, these groups target vulnerable kids, kids with mental health challenges, kids who are exploring, exploring their sexual or gender identities, kids from racial minorities. So it is very targeted and very deliberate. And basically what they want to do is control this child and ultimately have them kill themselves on live streams for their own gratification and their own status within the groups that they belong to. Groups like 764, where do these groups come from? They're offshoots. From the experts that we talked to, they're offshoots of older movements, one specifically called O9A, Order of Nine Angles, that originated in the UK in the 1970s. It's a satanic accelerationist movement that is intent on destroying society from within and replacing it with a new world order. It's very racist, homophobic. Every grab bag of hate that you can imagine is summed up into these groups. And these groups like 764 or CVLT, that's the group that Ali's predator belonged to, they're, they're the latest reiterations of these groups, but they are even in the spectrum of far-right extremism and hate. They are considered outliers because they specifically target vulnerable kids. So that makes them particularly depraved. Do we know how many kids in Canada may have been harmed by these groups? It's difficult to get any sense of that for a number of reasons. One, we don't know how many of these predators are out there. A single predator may use multiple usernames. We know that the groups themselves have an increased online activity, according to the RCMP. The RCMP says they are aware of these groups. And we know that these groups operate primarily on Discord because they use this private chat room feature to get the kids in. And that's where the, the exploitation continues. So according to cybertip.ca, which is Canada's tip line for child exploitation online, they have noticed more than 500 cases reported on Discord. They don't know if the same groups are connected to the cases that they've heard, but the characteristics stand out because in the general child exploitation landscape, most of the kids being ex uh, exploited are done for financial gain. These cases on Discord stand out because it's about controlling the child and self-harm and ultimately pushing them to um, kill themselves. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. 
Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. So let me bring somebody else into this who can talk a bit more about what's going on online and who these organizations are. Matt Richardson is a cyber investigator in Ontario. He works with law enforcement. He specializes in the dark web and anti-human trafficking. Matt, hello to you. Hello to you, Matt. Good morning. How common are, are stories like the ones we just heard? When we look at exploitation online, um, sextortion, predators who will meet and entice kids to meet them and exploit them, as we all know, it is not uncommon. In fact, if anything, it's increasing, especially since the pandemic. The specific nature of the cases we just discussed involving 764 and CVLT and the self-harm and suicides, I'm going to deem that that's a new threat. I would even call it emerging. It has surfaced and emerged. We really don't know how common it is because we're only now starting to learn and um, get acclimated to this phenomenon. It's not one group. It's not one or two predators. We don't know the full um, breadth and depth of it. So what I'm saying is I wouldn't call them common, but they're becoming more common as we are aware of these emerging threats. I mean, this is an important question in part because parents will have just heard what we're talking about and they they'll be really scared by by those stories and what might be going on. How worried should they be about their kids being targeted? I would take the, this is a public safety threat, as mentioned a bit earlier, the FBI do not frequently do these, it's pretty rare. So the severity of the violence, the depravity, and the fact that it's happening in sufficient volume deemed um, it necessary, the FBI did, to announce this as an, a, a legitimate public safety threat. Now as such, and as a parent myself, we do need to take this seriously. We do need to be aware, just like we are about sextortion, this is the new thing. It's entirely new. We cannot afford to not be aware of it. So I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, it's traumatizing, and I find it frightening and traumatic too. As a parent, we need to know. I would caution against being paranoid or overly frightened. I think as parents, we need to learn and understand the threat. Tuning in this morning is a good start on that. And we need to have these conversations with our kids, just like we do with other threats. Scary and frightening, yes, but we can get out and ahead of it and we can win as parents. Who are these people targeting? They're largely, it can be anyone's kid anywhere in the world, that's the thing. But their primary targets, Matt, are young females that have what they deem vulnerabilities. It could be mental health issues, um, eating disorders, some self-esteem issues. We do see members of the LGBTQ plus community being targeted. They target anyone they feel like they can exploit and leverage the vulnerability against them. They're using something called a honeypot. What is that? Well, the honeypot, so that's something I know I've encountered on Discord. For example, some of their targets are um, young women with um, eating disorders. So they will create a support group geared to that group to create what would appear to be a safe, welcoming space to share your struggles with like-minded people. It's a honeypot because you go in there expecting to get help and get some support, but once you're in there, they take your vulnerability and use it against you to get you to self-harm, commit suicide, animal cruelty, and all those things. A honeypot is a trap. As far as the platforms, Discord's a common denominator, but they're active on Roblox as far as gaming and meta products like Instagram, they're there. They tend to actually do their victim selection in the very platforms we use. They find them there, and then typically what you'll find happens is it's a connect request and a bit of banal chatter. They start to build rapport, and then they go right into classic grooming techniques or threats, just like a typical predator would. 
And then it's uh, the final thing is to go from a platform like Instagram, which is pretty surface level, and even parents are pretty familiar and comfortable. We know how to use it. Mm-hmm. They push them out of there to the discords and other platforms because they're more private and harder to break through on. And frankly, parents don't understand those as well. Part of this is about the lives that your children lead online. And you can think that you know what's going on on the phone, but 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 it's a whole other universe that parents don't have access to. And to your point, may not even understand. So what should parents be looking for here? What I personally look for in my life, it starts and ends for me at the dinner room table or, or the car rides to hockey practice. Conversations with my kids when they're with me, they're, they're the only people in the world I'm present and engaged as a parent. And if something's going wrong online, one way is definitely checking the messages like the father did earlier. But for me, if something traumatic is happening or there's a really big change in their life, good or bad, there's going to be behavioral changes. And if you're paying attention, you're going to notice if you know your kids, are they dressing different, different circles of friends? Are they normally outgoing and now they're really quiet and withdrawn? Are they, do they get anxious when the phone rings or they get a, a notification for a message? Because if we find it traumatizing to even read and do a story on this, can you imagine being the young lady that's ensnared and a victim? There will most definitely be signs of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. There's a number of them. Um, the other thing in this about this group, if you're noticing things like clothing changes where they're covering up more, that could be a lot of things. But it might be that they're covering cuts and cut signs, which is the people's names, the insignias of the groups. So personally, I'd be watching for signs of self-harm. Do you think parents should limit the apps that their children are using or have access to? I mean, the, again, the phone is a private space for many people. You think of what's on your phone and the conversations that you have, but should parents have access to those phones or limit the apps that their children are using? Actually, it would depend on age. If they're 17 and you've never done that, it's probably not going to fly. But let's assume that our kids are coming of age and we're going to introduce the phone to them. 110% rules of engagement. My son, in my case, knows full well. I'm not spying. I didn't sneak software on there. I'll just say, let me see your phone. Can you go to the messages? Show me this. He knows that that he agreed to that in order for me to pay for a plan for him. That's fine. What I do as a parent, Matt, there are how many apps out there and new ones growing every day, and this is my work, and I can't keep up. So here is a pro tip. Father or parent to parent. This isn't the investigator. This is a parent. I can learn three. So I will agree to three. And if they want a fourth one, one of the three has to go. But before even approving an app, I do what I call a coffee break Google. Google the app that they're interested in, TikTok safety, TikTok or Instagram, um, teenagers and danger. To try to school yourself on what, what's going on. You're, yeah, you're vetting it. It's like, am I comfortable with this app? And if I see reasonably good ratings and there's a strong trust and safety team and there's a, a strong mechanism for reporting abuse, at that and the content's reasonably moderated, at that point I'll go, okay, green light. Upon vetting it and then green lighting it, then I learn the features. Then my son and I will sit at the table and install it together, add each other, and we will together play with the features. So I don't say no to all of them because mm-hmm. then they're going to go underground and find other ways to get on them. I meet them in the middle and it's a fair compromise. Well, that was the other part. I mean, if you just say no, I mean, the kids could just sneak the apps on or, or, or figure out other ways to communicate. We need them feeling completely comfortable, open and transparent. They know that they can trust us and they can come to us for help. That's far more important than saying no altogether, in my humble opinion. How optimistic just finally are you that law enforcement, but also these platforms themselves, are going to take steps to address what is being done by, by these groups? 
with law enforcement, I'm 110% confident because they took the lead in a rare move. The FBI aren't known for that. And they felt, yeah, we might panic people, but we have to tell them. So I'm going to say kudos to FBI and the law enforcement community. Um, I, it's the response that they've had and how seriously they're taking it and it hasn't been around a long time, I think, is worth noting 100%. Now, with the, pl- with the platforms and the companies, for example, right now we're looking at Meta is at a Senate Judiciary Committee meeting with Mark Zuckerberg and the other CEOs of Discord's included in there. Um, I don't think that they're going to do it on their own. I think uh, profit. I think they're risk adverse. And what we're seeing now, in, from what I'm seeing, Matt, is legislators are now putting into place, they're putting them on the stand, and we're going to see regulations. The government is going to make them be better while they do good. So I'm not entirely happy they had to be forced, but what I will say as a parent is it's better than it was and it's about to get better because we're going to see the government make them do the right thing. Matt, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Matt Richardson is a cyber investigator in Ontario. He works with law enforcement, specializes in the dark web and anti-human trafficking. Ioana Miliotis from the Fifth Estate is still with me. Talk a bit more about those apps. We've been naming one of them, Discord. What are the platforms doing? To protect young people. Well, we can speak to Discord because that was the focus of part of our investigation because it is so prevalent among these groups um, as a preferred platform. It says that it does have safeguards in place, um, arguably, and many experts will say not enough. But in the case of Ali in Virginia, they the Discord flagged inappropriate conversations and messaging and images between an adult and a minor, and they alerted police. Discord does say that it doesn't have any tolerance for this kind of behavior, this kind of content, in, that it it does have 15% of its workforce dedicated to looking out for these signs and using algorithms to try to find these suspicious activities. But they may have a zero tolerance, but there is so much going on on these platforms, millions of servers and millions of messages that it's it's very hard to imagine that they can catch everybody. What about the police? What, are they, what do we know about how authorities are responding to to what's happening online? They are very alert, especially to this emerging threat that we're investigating. The FBI, as Matt mentioned, put out this extraordinary advisory. The RCMP says they are aware and they're monitoring their activity. But for the large part, especially in Virginia, um, police will say that they are in a reactive position, that they are simply not in a position that they can prevent something from escalating online and offline. And here's what uh, Henry County Sheriff Wayne Davis had to say about that. It's one of the things that we are behind on is the ones who operate under the cloak of the internet like the CVLT you know oftentimes those extremist type groups don't come to the attention of law enforcement until it's too late they've already been involved and committed a crime. And what about here in Canada? Here in Canada the push is increasing to hold these social media companies to account and the federal government has been promising that the liberals since 2019 but that legislation hasn't been tabled but in BC they're pushing for their own law in the province after a 12-year-old uh, died by suicide after being victimized online so i think the push is there and it is growing and unfortunately there's no shortage of cases to keep making the case of why this is so necessary we started in talking about um, these two young women and the cases and the stories of these two young women. How are they doing now, as you understand it? The girl in Canada is on a road to recovery. It was very traumatic for her and her family. So hopefully she's she's progressing. As far as Allie Broadway goes in Virginia, she is much further along in her recovery. A big part of her motivation is 
reclaiming her story, becoming the author of her own story. And a lot of that is because when she came back, she was found, she went to residential treatment for a year. She came back home. It's a small community, church-going community. She was shunned in many ways. Uh, Parents wouldn't let their kids sit next to her in church. Kids at school were mean. So nobody really knew what her story was. Mm. Uh, People had assumed she was a runaway. She was a 12-year-old who was manipulated by an adult, and somehow that got lost in the sensationalism of it all. And her her desire to talk was to kind of own it again. And she was really eager to do that. So was her great-grandmother, her guardian. I feel like I have so much value in myself. I have worth. I have, I have a reason to be here. And doing this interview is helping me realize that my purpose can be to help other people. That's quite a story. Parents will be paying very close attention to this. Ioana, thank you very much. Thank you. Ioana Romilios is with The Fifth Estate. You can watch her story tonight on CBC Television. And if you or someone you know is struggling, you can call or text Canada's Suicide Crisis Helpline. The number is 988. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.